And so the Hebrew and the Greek definition of servant is Pastor Warner. Let's give him a warm welcome tonight. Notice that Bruce really, he had the fellowship song leading thing going really good. That's, and to get sent out, you have to learn that. That's right there. Practice in front of a mirror, it works and it'll help be helpful. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 4. I. this last seminar, I enjoy uh, preaching in this uh, time slot uh, because it allows me to do something maybe a little different. A lot of things have been dealt with all week long. And, uh, I believe that those crucial uh, things have been addressed. The Holy Spirit has been very faithful to do that, but I want to really take a, 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 a route this morning that is somewhat different, but understood and embraced and practiced, the value of this is going to last far, far beyond this conference, but for the rest of your life. And I preached this to some of our young men recently and really felt that to do it in a wider audience would be very beneficial. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, uh, he presents us with the imaginary kingdom of Narnia that was ruled over by a king, a lion by the name of Aslan. And in one, people are familiar with the lion, the witch, the wardrobe, but in another of that series, The Voyage of the Dawn Trader, he begins and introduces a new character in that book, a young boy by the name of Eustace Clarence Scrubs. And the way he introduces him, he felt the best way for the reader to understand him was to know the kind of books that he read. And I'd like to read a portion. It says he liked books. If they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or fat foreign children doing exercises in model schools. In other words, he didn't have time for the types of stories that Lewis adored, stories about heroism, knights, and talking animals. As a result, Eustace is at a significant disadvantage when he first arrives in Narnia and finds himself in a dragon's lair. Most of us know what we should expect to find in a dragon's lair, Lewis writes. But as I said before, Eustace had read only the wrong books. They had a lot to say about exports and imports and governments and drains. But they were weak on dragons. 
The situation worsens when the dragon begins to stir. Quote, something was crawling. Worse still, something was coming out of the cave. Edmund or Lucy or you would have recognized it at once. But Eustace had read none of the right books. Back in the 1960s, there was a revival again of the phrase, you are what you eat. To promote good nutrition, that to be fed and healthy, you needed to eat good food. It was a major boon to the bean sprout industry and other things like that. I'm not a nutritionist, and I have no argument with the whole idea. But I don't want to talk about nutrition, but I do want to talk about something that I know for sure. And that is you are what you read. That we are shaped and influenced by the books we read. And like young Eustace Clarence Scrubs, a lot of people's lives are diminished because they have read none of the right books. 2 Timothy 4, verse 13, I want to preach on you are what you read. And every young disciple, every person needs to listen clearly to the Word of God that says, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. I want to talk about the disturbing decline, and a number of things triggered this whole message. One was a very eye-opening, somewhat of a shocking statement that Pat Williams, who is the owner of the Orlando Magic basketball team, said, he said, the average man upon finishing high school will not read a book the rest of his life. Now let that sink in. It is very sad. It is very shocking because reading is the brain's best exercise. That if you want to grow both personally and professionally, you must read. All of this recently became too much for a man named Tom Wayne. He is the owner of a used bookstore in Prospero or in Kansas City, Missouri called Prospero's Books. And he wanted to and needed to thin out his collection, but try as he may, he found that he couldn't even give away books to either the local libraries or thrift shops who all said that they were too full. And he saw this as another example of society's diminishing support for the printed word. And Mr. Wayne's solution was to have a public book burning and gathered, there's a little bit of press attention and others, uh, and as he lit the first book of, uh, batch of books, he said, this is the funeral pyre for thought in America today. Now, obviously he's being a bit melodramatic, etc., but I want to point out something to you this morning, and that is that there has been a huge decline in literacy in our nation. 
In 2004, one of the landmark studies by the National Endowment for the Arts was released, and it was entitled Reading at Risk. And I have a number of quotes, but bear with me. It said, for the first time in modern history, less than half of the adult population now reads literature. The decline is across all races, all education levels, and all age groups. Uh, it went on to document an overall decline of 10 points in the literacy rate between the year 1982 uh, and 2002. And one of their conclusions was America can no longer take active and engaged literacy for granted. And one of the things very interesting to me is they said uh, the most profound decline was among young adults between the age of 18 uh, and 24. And that what we're dealing with in this today is not a case of Johnny can't read, but Johnny won't read. That there are a lot of functionally literate people who are no longer engaged readers. And now the list of the obvious uh, culprits, you know, we can talk about the influence of television and movies, uh, of entertainment, uh, and of the internet, that we are more and more becoming a soundbite uh, generation. And there have been numerous studies uh, sh uh, telling that the American attention span is growing dangerously short. You simply have to ask educators about this and they will concur. You know, television is uh, programming people. It is structured on a specific pace uh, and that is eight-minute segments uh, in between commercials that is having effect of training people's minds to expect a shorter attention span. Now you think, why are you preaching this in conference? What does this have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you one thing is it impacts people's ability to listen to a sound biblical message. There we have people in our churches uh, whose ability to listen to uh, and to imbibe the Word of God is seriously hindered. It is a very disturbing decline. The chairman of the NEA said this report documents a national crisis. Reading develops a capacity for focused attention and imaginative growth that enriches both public and private life. The decline in reading among every segment of the adult population reflects a general collapse in advanced literacy. To lose this human capacity and all the diverse benefits it fosters impoverishes both cultural and, uh, and uh, civic life. And what I found very, very fascinating was how this decline in literacy, in reading, uh, correlates to and impacts the quality of people's life. Everything from lifestyle to civic involvement to people's earning power is affected by this uh, decline. It went on to say, reading also affects lifestyle, the study shows. Literary readers are much more likely to be involved in cultural sports and volunteer activities than our non-readers. 
For example, literary readers are nearly three times as likely to attend a performing arts event, almost four times as likely to visit a museum, more than two and a half times as likely to do volunteer or charity work, and over one and a half times as likely to attend or participate in sports activities. People who read more books tend to have the highest level of participation in other activities. In other words, it bleeds out into all of life without question. It, it impacts people's education, but it also impacts uh, people's uh, income. It said that one-third of the lowest income group, uh, never only one-third of the lowest income group, read literature during the year compared with 61% of the higher income group, those earning $75,000 and above. I put all of those facts in to say that what is being observed and what is being documented is a kind of cultural shift that is having some unintended consequences. I was reading about a man named Thomas Washington. He is a librarian in a private school in the Washington, D.C. area and uh, recently wrote a kind of lament uh, how that kids are very, very privileged, uh, have no problem of access to books, but they do not read. And he said this, I am a librarian in an independent Washington area school. We're doing all the right things. Our class sizes are small. Most graduating seniors gain admission to their college of choice. The facilities are first rate, yet from my vantage point, at the reference desk, something is amiss. The books in the library stacks are gathering dust. In the minds of the students, parentheses, and of many librarians, the library is now not about books, but about, quote, information literacy, the internet and database searches. Mr. Washington explains many librarians are no longer called librarians, but, quote, media and information specialists. And he said this, the buzzword in the trade is information literacy, a misnomer, because what it's really about is mastering computer skills, not promoting a love of reading and books. These days, librarians measure the quality of returns in data mining stints. We teach students how to maximize the database search about successful retrieval rates. What usually gets lost in the scramble is a careful reading of the material. And it goes against so much of the conventional wisdom that says, well, young people don't read because they're too busy, but somehow later on in life they'll reconnect uh, with their childhood love of reading, etc. And they're saying, you know what, it is not happening. And it ends on a very somber note saying that at the current rate of loss, literary reading uh, as a leisure activity will virtually disappear in a half a century. Now, I'm going to allow time to be the judge of the accuracy of a lot of these findings, but I can speak very factually to something from the Word of God this morning, and that is, by their books, you shall know them. To take some of Jesus' words and make a little change, don't worry, I'm not taking away from Scripture and adding and bringing judgment of God, but... All of us suffer from a common ailment, regardless of your background, education level. We all suffer at different times and to varying degrees with a problem I call dullness. 
Your mind is like any other muscle in your body. It needs to be vigorously exercised or it becomes flabby and out of shape. That's why if you want to grow, if you want to get stronger and more fit, then aerobic and strength training is absolutely necessary. You can go into a gym. They have all kinds of different equipment designed to exercise different body parts. You have lap machines. You have bicep machines. You have tricep machines. You have back machines that exercise back muscles. You have a host of uh, lower body machines, which I don't really care about. And I did find out that hammer strength and Universal and Cybex and others have been looking very, very diligently. And it seems that there is a device. Now, we're going to have to verify this uh, maybe at some later date. But there is a device that you can actually hook to your mind. There are not wires. It actually is not uh, all that complicated. But you can actually hook this device to your mind to exercise the mental muscle there. And that piece of equipment is called a bio-optic organized knowledge device, better known by its acronym, BOOK. See, this is why John Wesley told young ministers, either read or get out of the ministry. You know, over the years in preaching, uh, people have often asked me things like, Pastor, you know, where where do you you get that stuff? Now, I'd like to say, well, brother... God and I really have a <laughs> close relationship. And you've heard about the, you know, the special phone on the president's desk. Well, in my office, I don't put it out there. So it's there. I open the drawer and put it out there every morning. Yes, Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. awesome. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And point three, what? Okay, and you, and you said, in closing, what? <laughs> the answer is simple. I read. I am not an original. There are very few originals in this world. I'm not an original. I read. I pray. I ponder. I communicate. And that's where it comes from. And I want you to look with me at the Apostle Paul's fitness. 
Because here he is writing to Timothy in our text. He says, bring the cloak with you that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. And the books, especially the parchments. I want you to remember this morning that the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. He's talking about life's necessities. He says, Timothy, I want you to come before winter. He understands that the window of opportunity to uh, impart what needs to be uh, the final touches in Timothy's life is closing quickly. He says, I want you to bring Mark with you. Mark who has gone from uselessness to usefulness in the kingdom of God. He says, Bring the cloak with you. The seasons are changing. It's getting colder here. But I want you to look at this verse because it's easy to see the real passion of his request. The real love affair in this request is he said, when you come, bring the books with you and especially the parchments. And you can't miss the urgency in Paul's words this morning. Bring the books with you, and especially the parchments. And the amazing thing, here he is in prison. He is soon going to his eternal reward. He is much older, but he is still growing. The books, a person's library is a kind of x-ray of that owner's soul. It affords us a kind of mirror into people's minds and people's souls. That's why whenever I preach for men or I'm at their house, you know, I'm usually checking out their library. I'm usually checking out their books, seeing what they're reading. One man said, other people's books draw my attention, of course. They excite my curiosity about their owners and the worlds they inhabit. But it's finally my own books that matter as they tell me about where I've been and where I hope to go. And when I truly read a book, it becomes part of me. That's why anybody who has a love affair in this realm is very, very reticent about loaning out their books. (laughs) And only on rare occasions and then with severe admonition of great penalties if you fail to bring this back and there's some no matter what you do you're not getting you say I thought this was about servanthood it is servant needs his tools you go buy your own tools you ever noticed in either novels or films when there's a crucial moment in the plot where decisions are being made you know choices are coming down about well we're going to do this if it's a maybe a business choice or they're making a decision this person needs to be off or or, or something that in the novel or film that uh, invariably where this uh, crucial thing takes place is in the library oh he's in the library you can go on in david mccullough is one of america's most recognized historians he wrote the book truman the book john adams And he said that the way 
in researching these historical figures, that the way he got to know his character was not just reading what they wrote, but also reading what they read. Because you are what you read. And what we are talking about this morning is not just a discipline. Well, obviously it, it, it requires discipline, but it's more than that. It is a kind of romance as well. David McCullough said the first book I ever bought with my own money. This is tremendous. The first book I ever bought with my own money was a modern library edition of Richard Henry Dana's Two Years Before the Mast. I was 15 years old. In a bookshop in Pittsburgh, I picked up the book from a table, opened to the start of chapter one, read the first sentence, and knew I had to have that book. These are the words he read. The 14th of August was the day fixed upon for the sailing of the Brig Pilgrim on her voyage from Boston round Cape Horn to the western coast of America. And David McCullough said growing up in Pittsburgh, he had never seen the ocean. He had never heard the cry of a seagull. He had never smelled the salt air. But reading those words drew him in. He said, you know what, I must have that. And to him, this was, that wasn't the first book he ever read, but what he remembered, this is the first book I ever bought with my own money. And I can remember, and I understand, you know, PC Bible and other things like that changes things, and I use that. I'm not saying that that's, but I can remember as a young disciple, one of the pinnacle moments when I was able to buy my first Strong's Concordance. And I held in my hand, you know, saved not all that long, but I held in my hand the, the incredible work of someone uh, who spent years and years and years uh, so that I could benefit in understanding the precious Word of God. And I bought with my own money my first concordance. I was on my way. I didn't know really where, but I was on my way somewhere. I had a strong concordance. So that when I read the Bible, I could, first of all, find something if I didn't know where it was. And I could find the meaning of words. To be able to understand what was it that the Holy Spirit was trying to say and communicate. McCullough went on to say, reading is a crucial means of education and gaining knowledge. But books mean more than knowledge in the most basic sense. Books allow minds to meet, ideas to be exchanged, and experiences to be remembered or imagined. Those who do not read, listen to this, please. Those who do not read impoverish themselves by choice. They are the thieves of their own imaginations and wisdom. You say, why is this important? Why are you preaching this? Why is this worthy of a conference setting? Because reading is a very important Christian discipline. Leaders are always readers. And that the growth of a Christian, the growth of a disciple is closely tied to the reading and the studying of the Bible 
as, the, as well as the reading of worthy Christian books, uh, that a growing, developing, well-rounded Christian should be a serious reader. And if you're not giving yourself to that, don't even begin to talk about wanting to go into the ministry. Because all that I've said is doubly, triply so with a Christian minister. Books are the staple of our lives and ministry. And to a great extent, our personal libraries reveal something of our true identity and true interests. They are a portrait of our theological convictions. You can go in a man's library and it will tell you how serious a biblical scholar that preacher is. It'll tell you whether the person or the Christian or the pastor is feeding his mind and his soul by reading. It tells a whole lot because you are what you read. I want to talk to you finally about a call to arms. Because there is nothing frivolous and there is nothing shallow in what I'm preaching this morning. The church of Jesus Christ historically has championed the cause of literacy. The reformers fought for a translation of scriptures into the vernacular languages. The thing they fought for and that many of them paid with their blood was to put a copy of Scripture in the language of the common man into people's hands. And that desire and that cause changed the world's landscape. And the church has always championed the cause of literacy and the transmission of God's truth has always been closely tied to scrolls and codices and books throughout history because they understood that people are going to have to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and if they're not giving themselves to this discipline that will not be happening. And I understand that this can come easier to some people than to others. But there is a very simple call to everyone, regardless of how long you've been saved, your education, your background, it is a call to get engaged. And I don't mean scoping out the young women and getting engaged over conference over. I'm talking about engaging your life and your soul and your mind in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. One translation said wealthy beyond words. You have been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. The call... Every believer, especially every disciple, every pastor, every pastor's wife, 
to get engaged, serious, begin with discipline and maybe it'll become a romance of reading. I'm not talking about so that you become brainy or wordy. I'm talking about the enriching of your life. That you have been enriched in him in every way. I love Jesus Vicera's testimony. One of the most faithful men I've ever known and a great evangelist and a great blessing to so many churches. When Jesus got saved, he was illiterate. Didn't grow up with the uh, greatest of advantages. And he couldn't read. And he couldn't write. And he got saved. And on his own. Nobody prompting or prodding him. On his own. He started taking classes. And teaching himself to read. So that he could understand what God would have to say to him. He gave himself to that. That what, you know, what maybe comes a lot easier and more natural to others. He said, you know, I'm going to give my, and you know, I thought about that so many times over the years, you know, if that's your, what is your excuse? Let me just step into maybe some tricky waters here. It's okay. It's Friday morning. He taught himself to read so he could understand and he could speak God's word. We are a church with a world vision. Did you notice last night, Brother Juan Pablo? giving his report. Brother Alberto from Spain giving his report. They gave it in English. Wait a minute, hold on, hold on. You don't, you don't, don't know where I'm going. You don't, just listen. They didn't do that because they had to. They wanted to. Because they wanted to broaden their life and cement and strengthen the bonds of fellowship that reaches around the world. And can I just simply say, if these men who live in other countries, who their native language is Spanish, if you're living in America and you speak Spanish, praise God, I'd love to be able to speak Spanish better. But if you're living in America and you want to be part of a world vision, you better learn to speak English. In other words, if you want a vision bigger than this, and that's good, but you know what? The world isn't here. The world's here. I'd encourage you. Moving on. <laughs> Pat Williams that I referred to earlier, Pat, I want to set a record, be done in 35 minutes. <laughs> He challenged 
especially men. And his challenge to men was to give themselves to read one hour a day. And he said, I don't care if it's one 60-minute session, two 30-minute sessions, six 10-minute sessions, or 61-minute sessions. If you read one hour a day at an average pace, you will re have read one book in a week. That's 52 books in one year. And if you read five books on any one subject, you can be considered a world-leading authority on that subject. <laughs> so if you read one book a week for one year, you would be a world-leading authority on 10 subjects. Now, I don't know if I would necessarily go that far. But he's challenging men. And I, you know, whatever schedule, whatever means works for you. The message is you must become engaged. You must take breaks or scheduled times for reading. Now get on an airplane, normally... Wherever I'm going, that time is exclusively devoted to reading, especially reading all kinds of things that I'm not able to do at home with the, the, the crush of responsibilities, uh, taking that time as much as possible to uh, refill the wells of inspiration. I can get on an airplane go some, and take some time to read and all kinds of inspirations kind of needs back in the church uh, where I, that I'm here and somehow I'm missing, but when I'm just engaging my mind in all kinds of different areas, reading, then the Holy Ghost begins to inspire, remind me, impress me in all kinds of different areas. And what I'm not trying to put you on my schedule, but the point is you've got to get engaged. And where it starts is it starts at home. Many children never read because their parents never read. And many young disciples never read because their pastors don't read. It starts at home. And, you know, it ought to go, let me just throw this in, it ought to go without saying that if you're really going to do this, if you're really serious about this, then you probably should get rid of your TV. See, let me just, let me just say something, let me just say something about, you know, television. Is you know, the real evil to me about television is not just content. Because, you know, if you're saved, you really love God, you know enough, uh-uh, I'm not going there. The real evil is it's a time thief. And you know, I, I don't have a TV. I haven't since the, when I was saved. I even have one as a hippie. I didn't have anything as a hippie. But, uh, <laughs> but I don't just do that because, oh, I'm so holy. One reason I do it, I don't, you know, if I had one, I'd be watching it too much. And it's always amazing to me when I, you know, tell people, you know, uh, I remember a couple of years back, I was in Santa Barbara, told a friend, you know, he talked about America. I've never seen American Idol. And he was, you never seen American Idol? No. I said, I don't have a TV. And he looked at me like, I just punched him in the gut. You, know, you, don't, you don't have a TV. Well, what do you do? I said, we read. The point is, whatever the schedule, whatever the means, it is to give yourself to that task. One of the great privileges. See, this is 
one of the great privileges of being off support and being in full-time ministry is God giving you the time to grow and to enrich your life and enrich your ministry. And if you don't take that time for that purpose, you're wasting the gift that God has given to you as a preacher of this gospel. I was inspired this whole message by an article that was in the uh, it's not really a magazine the publication Imprimis some people call it Primus and it was an interview a speech given by a man named Michael Flaherty he's the president of Walden Media he, they were the ones that were responsible for the film uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, the Narnia story. But he read this, and he made this statement that I'll close with. He said, our project has opened up a fair debate about whether children should read books that have such frightening content. C.S. Lewis tackled this issue head on and offered some good advice that informs how we select our projects. Those who say that children must not be frightened may mean two things. They may mean, one, that we must not do anything likely to give the child those haunting, disabling, pathological fears against which ordinary courage is helpless, in fact, phobias. His mind must, if possible, be kept clear of things he can't bear to think of. Or they may mean, two, that we must try to keep out of his mind the knowledge that he is born into a world of death, violence, wounds, adventure, heroism, and cowardice, good and evil. If they mean the first, I agree with them. But not if they mean the second. The second would indeed, would indeed be to give children a false impression and feed them on escapism in the bad sense. There is something ludicrous in the idea of so educating a generation which is born to the atomic bomb. Since it is so likely that they will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you are making their destiny not brighter, but darker. We are born into a world of cruel enemies. It is the nature of the world we're living in. And you know what? Whatever their age, they need to have their brave knights. They need to have their heroic courage. Otherwise, their destiny is not brighter. It's darker. And the only way they're going to have that is going to be by the reading and the feeding upon and the studying of God's word. And the discipline of reading that enriches our lives, our relationships, and our ministry, and all that we do. And here the Apostle Paul writes from a Roman prison. Bring the cloak when you come. But don't forget the books. And especially the parchments. And my question to you is, will you be committed to grow, no matter what stage of life you find yourself in. Because if you're not growing in life, if you're not growing as a Christian, you are dying. You are stalled and stagnant. 
and the Holy Spirit would challenge our lives to become engaged in this realm. Let's bow our heads. This morning, I am not taking something that I enjoy or something that I do and making it mandatory for you. Discipleship is not your preferences, your little tastes, your little idiosyncrasies that everybody else has to buy into those in order to be a disciple. What I'm talking about is a biblical priority and a biblical discipline and a biblical love affair that has defined Christianity from its inception, but especially since the Protestant Reformation and has changed the world's landscape and is a paramount issue for those who would preach the sacred gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about that you get all your sermons by reading some book and saying what somebody else is saying, but reading is what fuels the mental machinery. It's what causes the mental machinery that in turn affects and influences the soul. It disciplines it to be a smooth, well-running machine. And one reason that many people have not really grown and flourished in their Christian experience is they have neglected this discipline. They listen to sermons, which is very, very good. The preach word of God. There is no substitute for that. God chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. We're not talking about uh, any kind of substitute for that priority, but I'm talking about the enriching of your life, the enriching of your preaching, the enriching of your understanding of your relationship with God, who He is, uh, the ability to feed people, the precious word of God. All of that is tied back to this truth this morning. That a wonderful day. And I can truly say that the presence of God, all, just from Monday night to this morning, has been so very real and tangible. And had a wonderful morning as Pastor Webb spoke about that amazing account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Probably one of the most solemn and dramatic moments in all of the New Testament next to the cross was that moment because Jesus is going to be gone in a matter of hours he is not going to be present with his disciples anymore and he said I cannot go I cannot leave unless they get this if they don't get this then everything I've come and lived for and I'm going to die and raised from the dead for is going to be put into jeopardy Pastor Jala spoke about the need for fruitfulness. I'm getting this second hand because I was involved in other matters. Spoke about one of my 
fancies. He spoke about fishing, and I don't know what he said, but you know what? The purpose of fishing is to catch fish. And I've been out, and I've had lovely boat rides on the ocean, and enjoyed the sun and the salt air, but you know what? I wasn't there for a boat ride. I was there to catch fish. Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. And I trust this morning, for some this isn't anything new, but for others, this one message that I preached, practiced. You don't have to be perfect at it. But just practiced and put into practice will enrich your life for years and years and years and years for the rest of your life. Is this applicable to discipleship? Absolutely, because the word disciple, the word methedes means a learner. You're going to be a disciple. A disciple is a learner. And that learning involves example and watching and observing, but it also involves the discipline, reading. And I trust that in some way I have provoked you enough to hear God's encouragement to your life that you know what there's much more land to be possessed that you can enrich your life and be blessed and be a blessing to others if you would pay attention in this realm we're going to open these altars this morning and people I believe that God is speaking to your heart I want to encourage you right now to come and find a place to pray